Hey, what's up everybody? It is Monday morning here in Thailand. I'm super excited for today's topic. Um, some synchronicities have brought this topic up. Uh, but real quick, oh, we'll say what the topic is. We're gonna speak about individuation versus the collective unconscious. These are kind of, they could be disparate terms. There's a lot of things and applications of today's topic, but like the core thing is individuation, which is bringing out your unique gifts, your oppressed parts of your psyche that are authentic to you, that are empowering to you, bring them out, and also how that ties into tapping into the collective unconscious, which is, we'll define that as well, but source of creativity, um, also get, is what most people are seeking when they go into spirituality, looking for like a feeling of oneness or connection to the eternal, and also wherever creativity comes from, we speak about that. Um, and there's going to be some, I mean, some synchronicities brought up this topic, um, so I'm going to cover different different um, applications of this. This uh, was actually brought up, I'm, I'm going to be referencing one of Carl Jung's books, Two Essays on Analytical Psychology, which is a terrible title for a book, it would have been a good subtitle, but I'm referencing this book and um, it was really interesting because I had planned on doing this topic uh, like a week ago. A bunch of other things happened this week that kind of... Um, made me think of this topic in different uh, different ways. And I was actually just going through this book and I'm, I'm, not, full, I'm not fully through this book. Randomly, uh, not randomly, but Carl Jung has some really interesting things to say about what I would call brainwashing or propaganda or and um, some takes on morality regarding reference groups and the collective versus your individuation. So we're gonna speak a little bit about brainwashing and some cult stuff which wasn't intended when I first decided to make this topic. <clears throat> so. Before we dig in, I do want to say uh, this episode is brought to you by a very unofficial sponsor. Um, very unofficial in that I decided a few minutes ago that I'm going to plug them. Um, so this book actually that I'm going to be referencing was lent to me by a friend out here in Chiang Mai uh, named Dean. Big shout out to Dean uh, for the book and for some other things because Dean uh, used to be a chef out in Australia. He came to Thailand with his girlfriend. Uh, he's been volunteering um, and helping. Uh, educate uh, less fortunate children, unfortunate children uh, out in like the rural areas of Thailand, uh, help learning, they, helping them uh, get supplies to, to learn, like to become educated basically. And he's also a trained chef and he created this um, awesome nonprofit business where he, he's a, a coffee connoisseur. He goes out and gets the coffee grounds um, from one of the many, many of the cafes out here. There's a huge coffee culture here in Chiang Mai. He takes the grounds, which are basically waste products, right? Turns them into this awesome soap, like this really fancy soap, like with different coffee types of scents. He has an espresso martini soap and a, a milk coffee soap. They're all great, but then the profits also go into getting learning supplies, educational supplies for these Thai kids. I believe in the cause. I believe in the product. It's really cool. So you can check out his stuff at singleoriginskincare.com. I don't get anything from it. I just believe in the product, the person, and the cause. Um, and he also lent me this book, and I don't think I'd be making this video if he didn't lend me the book. So you can check that out. And actually, I think he has an Indiegogo that's still live. I will link it if it's still live. Um, basically, you can get his stuff um, at a discount because he is funding everything. Everything's being bootstrapped as a nonprofit. And the products are awesome. I, I got a bunch of soap and sustainably made bamboo toothbrushes for my family in New York for Christmas. So check that out. Um, another quick announcement. If you've been on my website recently, you might have noticed some things have been moving around. Some links didn't work for a couple days. Um, there's a new website up. It looks exactly like the old website, but one major difference that you should care about. Um, for a long time, I haven't really offered anything on my website in terms of, like, in marketing speak, a lead magnet, like a reason to sign up for my email list. Most people offer, like, an ebook or something. I always had a hard time, like, offering something that I wouldn't care about. Like, I don't think you can, not, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of, um, I just haven't wanted to make an ebook or anything like that because I would never use something like that myself. But I was thinking, what is something I can offer people that would be a great value for free? And I realized I have like five years of interviews with different experts. Um, the video interviews, I usually, I mean, I put them on my, the audio on my podcast, but some people like video. So now if you, if you join my email list, if you just go to rwando.com, put in your email, you'll get access to five years worth of free content that I think is awesome. Um, so if you're already on my email list, I will send out a link this week on how you can access that. Everyone has free access. Just check that out. All right. <clears throat> so jumping into today's topic, um, it actually came up for a couple of, you might notice I have a tattoo 
Um, my housemate, Boom, gave me this new tattoo. Um, it's actually based on the Fool archetype, which I re resonate with. Um, one example being the Cheshire Cat, who had stripes in Alice in Wonderland. He was um, Alice's unusual uh, guide through the underworld known as Wonderland. And then the other one is um, the, the Lakota Sioux tradition. They're spiritual guides, they're, you know, they're medicine men, uh, shaman type person. I was known as a Hayoka, a thunder shaman. And I, I particularly resonate with that because their take on spiritual guidance, I mean, maybe not spiritual is not the right word, but um, moral guidance and stuff and how to live life was kind of more of a court jester role. Like, it would often do the opposite of the tribe to remind people not to take life too seriously and, and all that. So the reason why I bring that up is that um, for me, this is, I was thinking about this while I was getting the tattoo. One of these things, I mean, a tattoo in itself can be kind of a rite of passage because it's painful and you're putting a marking that's permanent on your body. And, you know, I mean, some people just get drunk and put on tattoos, but for me, it's always been a meaningful thing. I was thinking, like, this tattoo in particular is the first time I've... Uh, my other tattoos have been like philosophical things or things meaningful to me as an individual, but this is kind of a thing that's kind of uh, related to what I believe is my purpose and my function in life, which ties to today's topic of like tapping into the collective. So another thing that happened this week was um, a guy who took the archetype class asked me, like, how do you actually create a rite of passage for yourself? Because it's something I talk about a lot in the archetype class. And the whole function of rites of passage Particularly for men, I mean, obviously women have had rites of passage of different sorts too, but in um, pre-agricultural tribal uh, situations, um, typically what would happen would be when a boy, re uh, up until puberty, a boy was just one of the, the children. I mean, pre-puberty, you know, kids are all kind of the same for the most part. They would spend their time with their mothers uh, while the men were out doing, uh, you know, hunting or other you know, manly activities for the sake of the tribe. And around puberty, what happens is the boy gets a huge surge of testosterone. Suddenly, he becomes a man. He's like he's physically stronger. He's more aggressive. He has a sex drive. Like he's physically changed, and he has this um, this potency to do things. Like it could be constructive. It could be destructive. Obviously, a, a boy who has this new surge of testosterone can be very destructive, and we can see this in modern day. Um, and the purpose of the rite of passage would be um, to humble the ego, humble the hubris of this new, um, this new powerful little human or you know new, young man. So the, the the men of the tribe would take the boy away from the the children and, and the women, or take the boys away, and usually put them through some sort of physical uh, challenge where they had to battle the forces of nature or, you know, dig deep and like, you know, really find their internal fortitude because the whole point of this was that through seeing how hard and rough the world is, this young man, this boy would realize like, okay, I have this like incredible power in my body driven by testosterone. I can, I can break things. I can build things. Like I'm physically potent now. You know, I can, I can impregnate a woman. I can do things. But I need to remember that there's a purpose for this, there's a function for this in, in society. And uh, by humbling the hubris, by showing, by showing the function of the strength for the boy, which is not to go around and bash people on the head and go out and raping and pillaging, is that this potency is meant for battling nature. So the, the, after a rite of passage, the boy comes back to the tribe humbled, recognizing that his power is meant for a greater function than just himself. Because obviously, you know, a boy whose muscles suddenly get big and he has this motivation and courage could go around being super selfish and, and harming the collective for own personal gain. That's kind of like the root of, we're going to talk, speak about morality because Jung has some really interesting things to say about this in morality. Anyway, the, the, the rite of passage humbles the, humbles the young man, he comes back, he recognizes it's a hard world out there, um, and it basically is a way to align his now individual gifts with the, the needs of the collective. In, in an, an ideal situation, he'd be, okay, I'm, I'm physically strong, I'm courageous, I have you know, these new mental abilities perhaps, creative abilities, and I genuinely want to align them with the needs of the tribe, as opposed to, I want to go Anakin Skywalker and kill everybody for my own selfish needs. Obviously, if the world was like that, and there's many examples of, of men doing this, the whole toxic masculinity thing, whatever, um, but like, this can be a very damaging thing. Like when someone has power, one of the reasons why I think a lot of this political stuff that's come out recently is so anti-power is that, of course, when someone has individual power, like the ability to affect circumstances or affect people, they could use it in a damaging way. 
rites of passage were a way to basically realign a very powerful individual with the group. So I, ideally, everyone wins. Now, Jung has some really interesting things to say about how even this, which in itself is like a beautiful thing, the rite of passage, it can kind of be twisted into a brainwashing technique, and we're going to get to that second. <clears throat> so I actually want to define some terms, because it, well, one thing I really like about Jung is um, a lot of the terms we kind of like, a lot of people use um, kind of haphazardly, especially in like personal development and spiritual communities, like collective unconscious, persona, even like the concept of introvert, extrovert. We, we, we often, we kind of take these words for granted, but we forget that a hundred years ago with Freud and Jung, none of these words existed. Like a lot of these words we take for granted about how we um, understand the mind, we're kind of just, not just just, but they were made up by Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, the people of that era, like, and it wasn't that long ago. So. When you read his, his stuff, it's interesting because he's basically like the first essay of this book that I'm referencing. He's basically defining what an introvert and extrovert is, which is, you know, everyone knows what that is. It's just common speak. But back in the, I don't know when he wrote, I think the 1930s or, or, or maybe earlier, he, this was a word he just made up. It was like he just made up a term in a blog post, basically. But anyway, I want to define collective unconscious and uh, personal unconscious. So it's, like, it's actually good to make a little matrix. I'm gonna make, draw it bigger than it was. Um, so we have the personal part of the psyche, or the personal psyche, and the collective. So this is like what's, what's true for me individually, and then it's true for everyone. And we'll break this down. And then <clears throat> we have the conscious, that which we are aware of, and the unconscious. Okay, personal conscious is our identity. We can call it the ego. Ego literally means identity, or ego is I in Greek. Um, not that I speak Greek, but I've been learning a little bit on the apps. And then uh, collect, so the collective conscious, so like the purpose of um, rites of passage, even modern day rites of passage, um, that are kind of like perverse like attempts at it, like fraternity hazing or, um, you know, any kind of hazing that kind of like, you know, if you think of like a fraternity hazing or sports team hazing, uh, young man, full of testosterone, uh, full of hubris, like a sports, like on, on my rugby team, we had a, we had a hazing thing, wasn't supposed to talk about it, but I don't care. Um, we had a hazing thing where it was basically a lot of drinking and humiliation, and you had this team of like high, like, you know, aggressive dudes, and there's actually a uh, purpose for it, which is to humble everyone, get them all to connect, and after the hazing ritual, all of the young men are kind of, are like bound, like they're emotionally bound, like they're all still full of testosterone and rage, or maybe not rage, but like potency, some of them had rage, but now they want to align and like, like, it creates this collective conscious identity. So your collective conscious is what we call a reference group in psychology. It's the group you refer to. So um, we all have many reference groups, like the people we hang out with. Uh, if there's like a, a work culture in your job, if there, if you have a social group, a clique, uh, you're part of some club, whatever. Like any any group, a reference group is any group that you you use you um, refer your sense of normal to. So uh, like obviously. Throughout cultures, throughout subcultures, everyone has a different at, like uh, consideration of normal. Like if you remember, if you, I mean, if you caught my uh, my podcasts on, on my cult experience, um, one of the things I, I spoke about was one of the benefits of being in, in that really kind of unusual environment was that it changed my sense of normal. Whereas like in my normal, in my previously normal pre-cult social circle. It wasn't normal to like talk about your feelings. It wasn't normal to be bold. It wasn't normal to like be into like personal development or really cultivating your connection to yourself or all that stuff. But when I went to the cult, suddenly all of that stuff that I was personally interested in, like my individual, individuated self was fascinated by, it was now normal in this group. So it became um, easier to, to transform because a lot of times, no matter what our effort is, we, we revert to our sense of normal. If you think it's normal to make 100 grand a year, you're probably gonna subconsciously do those things. If you think it's really only normal to make 30 grand a year, it's gonna be very hard for you to 
to take the actions naturally that will lead to higher income. Why? Because we revert to our sense of normal, which is why very often you hear things like your income is the average of your five closest friends type of thing. That's true for a lot of things. Like our reference group, our, our, our collective consciousness is very, our collective consciousness is very important. So that's our group identity. Uh, our nation, our ethnicity perhaps, our gender at times. Um, hold on. So, um, so the rites of passage I just mentioned humbles the very powerful new identity of a, a post-pubescent young guy. And then now he's like more, now when he thinks of his identity, he's thinking of collective identity. I just wanna, I wanna, I wanna speak a little more on this because this is actually something that is um, kind of an ideological shift between East and West, or I'll speak specifically like American identity, I'm, I'm American, American identity is very individual focused. Like it's in our Declaration of Independence that like the like society should serve the individual. This is kind of response to colonialism, but like it's very like, any American and most people in the West kind of just assume that. But it's an interesting uh, video I saw um, by Vladimir Putin, and I think he was just—I think he was just being interviewed. and He was speaking about the difference between um, the collective American psyche and the collective Russian psyche. And he was basically like, Americans assume what I just said, which is that the individual is the most important thing, and the collective should serve the individual. In Russian culture, traditionally, and a lot of like. Um, Eastern cultures, I, I'd say this is true. Actually, many ancient cultures, like America is kind of a new, uh, a new collective conscious, relatively, we've only been around 250 years. Um, like historically, the collective conscious has been more important. Like, people would identify with their group, they'd be like, I need to sacrifice myself for the group. Actually, um, Noah Harari in Sapiens, he speaks about this, and one of the, one of the things that made, made people, made humanity shift away from collective conscious, basically um, the idea that uh, we should suppress our individual needs for the sake of the group, um, is kind of like an old survival strategy. Back in the day, everyone relied on their family and we all needed our clan a lot more. Whereas once consumerism hit, Basically, consumerism—the the, the the idea that consumerism incepts—is that if you have enough money, you can get all of your needs met without needing other people, which is can be empowering for the individual. Which is probably why uh, consumerism caught on and led to capitalism, and, and is what the norm of the world is shifting towards. But <clears throat> um, historically, throughout most of human history, we've kind of had a different opportunity. There's pros and cons to that, obviously. Um, one of the reasons why I think so many people feel alienated these days um, is that they are, uh, they're running on this model of like, I need to be this like, individual, like, like New York City where I grew up is like a big example of that. Everyone's trying to make more money so they can live in a, a slightly larger, very expensive box by themselves. Whereas if you think, and one of the things that drew me to my cult again was like, I was living in New York, I was paying too much in rent, or I was, you know, I was struggling with rent, and it's just like, um, oh, if I just live, if I just pooled my resources with a couple people, we could have so much more, which is kind of how our tribal ancestors lived because there just weren't a lot of resources. Anyway, this is this the conscious side of the of the psyche matrix. You have your personal ego, you have your reference group, but then we have everything that's unconscious, which is like the archetypal stuff, which gets really interesting. So the personal unconscious is like, this side of, is a little more um, vague because it's unconscious, but personal conscious at one extreme, uh, we could call your individual creative genius. It's like what's unconscious but unique to you. So, <laughs> excuse me, I'm a little, a little stuffy. Uh, so repressed memories, repressed gifts, anything of when you were a young child and recognizing how you can fit into your environment and you like certain suppress certain instincts and like develop your ego off of that. We'll talk about personas also today. Um, that is like part of your personal unconscious. Whereas on the other extreme, the collective unconscious, we can call the wisdom of humanity. And somewhere in between, there's actually not like a clear line here. Somewhere in the between, we have archetypes. And it's kind of more of a continuum uh, than a clear uh, unconscious. We can really only see it at the extremes. Um, so like an archetype, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to, well, an archetype basically, one, one, one way actually to understand archetypes is that they are um, like images or sets of behaviors in our psyche that because they are pretty common, like there's a bit of a hero in all of us, there's a bit of a, 
uh, a fool in all of us, things like that. Um, they're archetypes because they're very common. Not that everyone has a full expression of every archetype because you can slice up behaviors in many different ways. Like there's no like one set of archetypes, right? Like the same archetypes, like the, the 12 that I, someone told me that Jung identified 12. I don't think there's any way to like say these are the archetypes because they're, they're subjectively, um, they're subjective sets of behavior that we choose to categorize in some way. But um, archetypes are something that Everyone has a different, um, has different expressions in them. Like you might have more of a, uh, I might, it might have more of an artist in you than your friend, but they might have more of a, I don't know, uh, king nature than or father nature than you do or whatever, right? Um, the deeper we go into uh, the unconscious, the less personal these these abilities get, and we're, we're going to speak about this more because it can get a little like uh, get a little deep here. Um, so. Uh, so one thing with the uh, one, so I'm going to speak about the rite of passage uh, just to com just to close that loop. Um, so this guy who took my archetype class, he was asking. We did a coaching session. He was asking me about like I had a, I had to create a, a, a rite of passage or what's the function. I was speaking about what I just said, and um, uh, what I was getting at with him, and the whole reason why I speak about any of this stuff is that when when I'll speak for men, but I think this applies to everybody. Um, when you're coming into your gifts, or when you come into personal development, in the beginning, almost every person is like, I have this need that needs to be filled. For a lot of guys, it's like, oh, I want to make more money, or I want to find a more fulfilling job, or um, my dating life sucks, I want to have a better dating life, or I want to have a better love life, or I want to you know, have like, some like, existential crisis. And you're trying to like heal, you know, heal in quotes, in quotes, this wound in quotes uh, within you and that's a perfect reason to get started in fact very few people um, get started for a reason like get, get interested in their personal development or spirituality for anything but a selfish reason I don't mean selfish like selfish is not negative it's like something personal to you you have a wounding you have a trauma you have a inadequacy a lack of competence you want to fix that great Ideally, if you go on this journey of developing yourself, this personal hero's journey, eventually you meet guides, mentors, you learn some things, you watch a video that changes your perspective and you feel better. Eventually, um, the patterns that held you back go away. Your dating life gets better, you learn how to make more money, get over your shit, get over your resistance, whatever. But at a certain point, at a certain point in, in one's development, assuming you're able to develop, um, you'll realize that your personal need, whatever inadequacy that drove you in the beginning, is kind of fixed enough. Not to say that you're, and every, anybody heals 100%, like we all are, have imperfect, imperfections and insecurities on some level, but like at some, some point you, you do need to tell yourself, hey, you know what, I think we're good and I don't need to be gluttonous because this is something, it's a danger I've seen in the self-help world and, and like every time I've like, I disconnected myself from the industry that I'm in. I'm like, this is the thing that kind of bugs me is that there's so many people who become like self-help junkies where they're like trying to consume every single bit and like they don't realize this. And I was just speaking about this because I have a buddy who, um, he's been on this like journey of self-growth about as long as me. We both started in like the pickup world, which is like very heavily focused on connecting with women, obviously, but he never left that world. And like, you know, he's as old as me. He's had a lot of success in that realm. And like, he's still always trying to chase the next hit. And I don't think he's, I mean, I don't think he's that, that uh, fulfilled because like, he's always trying to get validation from women and then get validation from men and how much validation from women. Like we, we all know types like this or have heard of types like that. And it's not fulfillment. I mean, to go from uh, good to great, you kind of have to make your, your personal efforts about more than just you. So at some point, I don't know if I can make this on the whiteboard. Uh, I was making this little one. I don't know. I'll just describe it. So, like, uh, uh, when you go through your journey, at some point you realize, okay, I'm, I'm I'm actually good enough. And then a lot of guys will get kind of like bored. Like, what do I do? It's kind of I reference the movie Memento a lot. Uh, I'm gonna spoiler spoiler it. Spoiler alert! If you haven't seen Memento, good movie. But the, this guy goes to this film trying to avenge his wife's killer, and he has uh, short-term memory loss. Uh, that's part of the movie. He keeps forgetting what happens. He has to tattoo the the clues on his body. And at the end of the movie, he realizes that he already killed his wife's um, killer a long time ago. He actually avenged her like 10 years ago or something, but he's been making himself forget 
and then picking a new target and killing new people um, because he didn't know what to do with his life after completing his mission, right? And I think a lot of guys fall into this trap of like, okay, I fixed my initial problem, like what do I do? And they, they either end up becoming gluttonous and like just trying to like stuff the problems, like no, never enough women, never enough money, never enough whatever, or they keep searching on new problems. It's like, and this is not like a danger I see in um, like spiritual communities a lot because Obviously, vulnerability is, is a, a great virtue and is championed and, you know, in a lot of these spiritual communities, you'll be rewarded socially if you're like, you can be vulnerable because it's great, it, it makes you connectable. But then people will like, look for ways to be fake vulnerable. They'll like, like keep like, okay, oh, I have this problem, or I have this issue, I have this like, negative pattern to get over. Maybe you don't. So the whole thing that, you know, not everybody has access to like a rite of passage that should be done ritually with a group, but at some point in one's development, you have to decide, okay, my efforts and my attention are no longer needed just to self-serve my selfish needs. Some, at some point you have to switch like, okay, I'm gonna give my gifts to the collective and not for reasons of being like just good for good's sake or being nice for nice sake, because actually the whole thing with nice guys is that they skip over healing their own personal needs. They skip over getting their own personal needs met and they jump to like, hey, look what I'm doing for all of you guys, but it always comes out as creepy or weird or like unclean because they haven't actually fulfilled their own needs. So they're trying to like get their needs met by fulfilling others, which is not actually beneficial to society nor is it beneficial to you. What is beneficial is like when you're actually secure and actually whole enough that you can get by without like, wallowing or like uh, feeling inadequate or feeling in, scare, uh, in scarcity and you have enough and now you can focus your efforts on something that benefits the other people, that ends up being the most fulfilling thing. So the thing that our tribal ancestors did with these rite of passage, rite of pa rites of passage is they kind of, they kind of created a situation that forced this on the psyche of a young man. Nowadays we don't have this, we all are, are living in this consumerist uh, society, so uh, we kind of have to create it for ourselves where we once we have our individual needs met, which you should go meet, if you want to meet more women, go do that. If you want to make more money, go do that. Those are all important. But at some point you have to be like, okay, I actually want to create something that's bigger than just me. And it could be something small, it can be a physical work, it could be volunteering, it could be building a business that benefits other people where some of your profits go there, or you have the means to now help other people because you have stuff. Like obviously, I mean, I mean a lot of people make this analogy with, uh, when you're in the airplane, you gotta put on your mask before others. Then you can actually do this, and the whole point is that this is not a, a, a question of selfishness versus altruism. It's that once you're full, the most selfishly fulfilling thing happens to also be an altruistic thing. The whole thing behind these rites of passage was that it, it didn't like be like, okay, uh, young man who's like full of testosterone, stop bashing people over the head and raping and pillaging and do this thing that build a wall instead. Like, no, it's like, it, it's a, uh, creating conditions where the young man is like, you know what, the thing I want to do most in life with my, my gifts is like build something that benefits the tribe, create a piece of art, uh, go to war, go hunt an animal, whatever the fuck, right? And a lot of what I found like as I've gotten my personal needs met and found security, I think this is true for everyone, is that sometimes the most fulfilling thing for me to do for myself is stuff that kind of benefits other people, even on a primal level. Like I've spoken about this before. I've been like, this is my first time having like real property, and I've been enjoying building fire pits and chopping wood and this stuff, like very like primal stuff, like moving my body that does benefit my community. And um, basically, yeah, we're trying to. Uh, we're trying to reduce the separation between the selfish act and the altruistic act. There's a sexual application to this too, is actually how I teach sexual escalation to guys too. Like, if you're doing things just for her, she's gonna feel that and be like, feel like, well, he's like just trying to like manipulate me to have a good time and like him. And if you do things just for yourself, obviously, uh, then you're gonna come off as like uh, a selfish dude. But if you can align like exactly what you want to what she wants, uh, that's like, that's what makes magical flowing sex is like exactly what you want happens to be what she wants everyone's on the same page and then you can like i always say this when it comes to sexual escalation my mantra is be connected be selfish like connect with the other person so you're feeling corresponding feelings and then do what feels good to you now you can take this out of the bedroom same thing with your life you know so the whole idea behind these rites of passage was to humble the person, uh, make the ego not so hard so they, that they can identify with the reference group. We're gonna talk about the dangers of this in a second, but on the virtuous side, um, this person, as they, they can connect their creative genius to the wisdom of humanity, because on the flip side, um, one of Jung's theories is that uh, we are not born as a blank slate. We are born with 
thousands of generations of um, of impulses. Like they're not conscious thoughts. They're not like uh, you know, not not not. We're not talking about remembering past lives or anything like that. But it's like we have, just like a dog is born with certain instincts. We were born with certain instincts that evolved over time to for the for the sake of the survival and replication and happiness of our ancestors. So like when I speak about archetypes, for instance, one way to understand archetypes, I actually. Uh, some, I mean, this is a bit of a nerdy way to put it, but I actually compare it to genes. So, so I'm going to take a sip and then I'm going to go on a science tangent. <clears throat> so like in the selfish gene, now Richard Dawkins uh, compares genes to like, uh, you, you com compares your chromosome to a big binder full of data where half the pages come from your mom and half the pages come from your dad. That's your genetic data. But then it gets mixed up, right? And there's certain chapters, like there's a chapter that refers to your eyes, eye color is a chapter that refers to your gut micro, I don't know, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about, I'm not going to speak about the specific, but there are chapters that refer to different parts of what makes up you. And, um, and within, these within these random assortments of pages, there are certain sequences of pages that find themselves replicating themselves because they have a benefit to the organism. So like, um, let's use eye color as an example. Um, Blue eyes uh, see better in in in, um, in snowy situations, right? So like, if both of your parents have like the blue eye gene, um, like this blue eye, this the section of cro uh, pages that create blue eyes, you might get blue eyes too, for the reason that uh, you know if, if it was useful for both of your parents. Perhaps you live in an area with a lot of snow and it'd be useful for you, so when you go out hunting, you can see better in the snow, for instance, right? Archetypes are a similar thing, but instead of being your physical, uh, you know, what makes up your physical body, it's what makes up your psyche. Archetypes are like collections of feelings and behaviors and impulses that were for some reason useful to our ancestors, so they're in there and they get tra transferred down. Now, do they get transferred genetically somehow? Are they attached? Are there, are there genes? Are there archetypes that are attached to a certain uh, bunching of genes? Are they passed down uh, through behaviors, like your father acts a certain way, so like that behavior gets transferred to you? Or does it get transferred through some more mystical thing of like you're tapping into this giant computer that is uh, human, human collective unconscious and somehow you're downloading this data? We don't know, it doesn't actually matter, but what matters is that we can recognize what's in ourselves and bring it out for the sake of individuation where we can become a most uh, happy and successful individual. Um, now, with the whole thing of like connecting into this collective unconscious, well, I just want to finish the loop on that. As far as like the, um, the practical uh, expression of like connecting to the collective unconscious, or, because a lot of times when we speak about collective unconscious, people are speaking about like creativity, right? Like there's this, there's this uh, feeling in the unconscious of all of humanity, or there's this idea in the conscious of un uh, unconscious of all of humanity that's now like the creative geniuses of the world are able to pick up on first, and like that's what leads to innovations in science or music or art or whatever. Um, so, so one way to do that, and it relates to what I just said, in anyone's personal development, spiritual journey is once you have like the selfish needs met, if you keep pulling on what's uniquely interesting to you, this is, I spoke about finding your purpose a couple weeks ago, similar idea, you're, you're finding what's uniquely interesting to you in a way that you can express it in some way to benefit other people. It's not like going like, oh, how do I, how do I, like, I, mean, I guess there's two ways to look at it. Like, I have this random interest in this random creative endeavor, and, it, and if I express it enough, maybe it can benefit and entertain or give value to other people. That's one way at it. Or there's like, okay, I see this need in the world that I think I'm unique to fill, and I, I wanna like fill it, and I'm gonna find a way to enjoy it as well. Ideally, it's, it's both of those things at the same time, and we will call that your creative purpose. And one way, uh, and in order to hear that, here's like, uh, I guess you could call the creativity hacking side, is you have to humble the ego and, and you know, every, and I, I spoke about the war of art and I might do a, a video on the war of art uh, um, soon. I mean, he speaks about this a lot, like any artist, any genius artist doesn't really take credit from it, uh, create credit from their work because they know that it kind of came from something beyond their personal identity. Like your ego has a really important function, but your, con your personal conscious, your ego identity, doesn't create genius things. It just doesn't. I get, I, like genius work comes from something that's a little less personal, a little less conscious, and we can say something that's like not even personal to you, maybe 
is tapping into the wisdom of humanity. It depends how you spin it. But um, I do want to speak about now the dangers because like, as I was reading this stuff in, in the Young book, um, uh, you know, obviously there's all this stuff that related to what we're talking about and then he gets into this like, well, here's a danger of connecting to it. And this is actually one of the things that the guy who reached out to me about um, the rites of passage stuff, he was concerned about because I kind of compared rites of passage to like fraternity hazing or like, he was like, well, isn't that kind of, aren't you suppressing yourself then for the sake of the tribe? Isn't that like the opposite of individuation? And I want to, I want to, um, and actually Jung has like some good things to say about that. Okay, I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Moving past your personal problems, nice guys. Um, well, one way to like look at your personal unconscious, and this is like a model that some people like that uh, your like the brain doesn't originate the mind, like the mind is a receiving station for consciousness. It's one model you can entertain if you like. If if you do entertain that model, then basically your personal unconscious, where you. Uh, perceived dreams, random thoughts, intuitions, that's kind of like your receiver station directly to the wisdom of humanity, if there is such a thing. Um, and again, you, you can look at wisdom of humanity as like this etheric thing that existed before humans existed, or like you could, you could call it God, if you will, or we can look at it maybe a little more scientifically, or as more of a scientific model of like, these are like behaviors that have, behaviors, thoughts, and feelings that have evolved within humans over time, for some purpose, and now you're learning how to basically find a unique expression of this eternal genius, if you will. Anyway, so so Jung uh, speaks about this thing. is interesting about um, when you connect to your uh, when like when one um, humbles the personal aspect of the psyche for the sake of collective, um, there could be some dangers. So like he speaks about like uh, primitive cultures and how almost all primitive cultures have some version of a medicine man. And I, I want to say I. I Decided to get this tattoo before I read this, so it wasn't like I read this and like this is the reason why I got a Hayoka tattoo. Um, but like, uh, it was like there's always a medicine man, and the medicine man um, had to be. There's a couple things that uh, were important about this medicine man, whether it's a tribal chieftain or like a court jester type or like a separate shamanistic type. It was real important that this person um, was a. Uh, a high model of behavior. Like they couldn't be someone who had visibly had a ton of insecurities or anything like that. Like the collective, like the, the regular people had to be able to look up to this person and like this, this person has to be a model of, of, um, of behavior, right? This person is, is secure, he's confident because the, the collective is gonna kind of lean on this person for guidance and lean on this person for feeling okay about themselves or about the future, about you know their survival in the cold, hard world. So it's really important this person uh, had exemplary behavior. But also, because of this person being a, a, a guide of a sort, uh, this person had to have different um, external markings. So like, <clears throat> in Native American cultures, they may had a headdress, or they wore, or they, they, Jung speak about, spoke about this in every primitive culture, the medicine man or spiritual guide had some sort of peculiar markings that like differentiated the person from the group. And, um, <clears throat> and, by when you stop there, that's great and important because like all these people are relying on this person, and ideally, this person and it was uh, earned the spot, right? It wasn't just like some random person, like oh hey you, you're gonna be a medicine man, you gotta be, you gotta act perfectly, and you have to be wise, and you have to tap into the wisdom of the unconscious for us, and like here you go. No, this person was someone who earned this position because like maybe when they were young, they demonstrated certain behaviors of courage, of intuition, of genius, and the, the tribe elevated this. Uh, this boy into a man, like, okay, you are the shaman of the tribe, or you are the chieftain, or whatever. And like, by itself, again, that's great, that's important. This person, on uh, the book, the individual and collective level, um, the shaman or tribal leader or whatever, earned this position, he's individuated as, as such a person, and, the, and the, the collective can now look to this person for guidance, and that, that's, that's great by itself. What becomes dangerous is kind of, um, uh, I forget what term Jung uh, used to refer to this, but something like, um, it's kind of a, actually I'm gonna see if I could look it up because I remember it being important. It was um, a human tendency to uh, basically turn things into rules. It's like, uh, we're like, okay, this, this, uh, this guy earned this position as the tribal chieftain. Maybe he's perfect with everything. And if you, if you know psychology, like in Cialdini's influence terms, this is the halo effect. Like, oh, this person earned the spot to be chieftain. He must be perfect when it comes to everything. He must be perfect when it comes to, um, 
his uh, dealings and relationships, he must be perfect, whatever. And this is basically the start of what, what makes a cult, right? Like, um, everyone's like, oh, this person gave us great advice on how to live our lives. Well, if they say they should be sleeping with everyone, that's probably right. Or if they say they should get all the money from everyone, that's probably right. And like, people start, people, um, instead of being like, we trust this person because they earned it, they're like, well, we need, uh, this person earned it, so therefore me, we must trust them. And this is where things become dangerous, both both for the individual and the person. Like when I read this in the in the young book, I was like, oh, he's talking about basically cultural brainwashing. He's talking about propaganda. He's talking about how cults are made. This is really bad for the collective because, as as Jung also wrote, um, when it becomes like turned into a dogma, people stop thinking of why they're doing a thing. They're like. They're like, oh, well, we, we've always been doing this thing, so I'm going to suppress my individual instincts for the sake of this, uh, for the sake of the, the tribe. And like, this is uh, one of the, this is the main danger that he, uh, he spoke about because, actually, I highlighted this in the book because Jung was saying that um, the bigger a collective gets, the bigger a group gets or a tribe gets, the less commonalities between the individuals, right? Like, obviously, like, if I have my archetypal makeup and I'm hanging out with one person, you, we're going to have some things in common. Maybe we both believe in certain courageous virtues, but we're going to have differences, right? But let's say maybe like 70% of our psyches have something in common. So in a, in a tribe of two people, um, there's like this set of virtues that is mostly true. Like if we both like forget about our, our idiosyncrasies and only do what's true for the two of us, maybe 70% of us is uh, still there and it's like fine, or maybe even more than that, maybe it's 80%, it's like fine, like whatever, I'll stop doing like the, the, the 20% of things that are like, that are uh, not cool with you, say like if we were roommates for instance, right? Um, but now we add like four more roommates, obviously between like six people or eight people, there's gonna be less commonalities because we're all unique individuals, so like maybe, uh, maybe there's only 40% within our psyches that are common, or like if we, if we use the roommate analogy, maybe, um, Maybe the only, instead of all of us having like, oh, this is how we keep our house clean, maybe like uh, only 40% of the things are in common. And what happens is groups get bigger and bigger and bigger, especially when groups surpass Dunbar's number, which is, you might have, uh, if you read, read Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about it, calls it the law of 150. Um, after 150 people, it's, it's hard for a group to feel intimate because our brains are only able to handle so many relationships. So if you're in a group of 300, if you're in a group of 150 or less, it's possible over time you get to know everyone and have like a one-to-one -one relationship with each person. But if you go past that number, if you've gone to, if you have been on a team where like it's a big, or been in a company where it's more than 150 people, it's it's unlikely that you're gonna be able to really know every single person. And then you start to feel like this, um, one, you start to click up. It's uh, also, uh, some people start to feel like strangers and the, the negative where it becomes damaging as far as like your individual individuation versus connecting to the group is that with like 150 or 200 people, it's gonna be the, the, the amount that we're all gonna have in common in terms of our values and virtues and individual, you know, our archetypal expression is gonna be so small. It's gonna be maybe 10% or 20% or 5% we talk about, or like 1% when it comes to big societies. Like, and then what happens in these uh, bigger than Dunbar's number groups is that when, so, so I'm gonna keep with the example, if there's just two of us and we only have 80% of our things in common, those other 20%, I'm gonna be like, oh, well, that's your thing. You know, I'm not into, I'm not into that, but that's your thing. And then like, I have these 20%, it's my thing. And, like, that's my stuff. And like, it can be fun. The bigger the group, once you get past Dunbar's number, <clears throat> anything outside of the, the collective identity, anything that's with, not within common of everybody, starts to seem evil. Anything that is like, um, basically like a, 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 an idiosyncrasy starts to seem dangerous because like, like, whoa, why are, you, why are you doing that weird thing? So like, if you look at the things that tend to be demonized um, historically through, through large human civilizations, sexuality, creativity, anything that's not religion, because religion historically has been a way of like getting everybody to agree to the same ideas and philosophies and identity. Um, anything that's outside of those things becomes dangerous and, and um, the nat it becomes, as Jung said, instead of being something that's like, uh, okay, here's the stuff we're into, it gets shoved into the unconscious, and when it gets shoved into the unconscious, it, it, uh, the collective can make it seem evil. So sexuality is the big thing because sex is so personal, sex is such an individual expression, and when someone is like empowered, we talked about sex transmutation and arousal as a force last week, like when someone's empowered by that individual drive to procreate, to move your genes forward, to get out your second chakra creative expression, 
it's very unlikely that your individual creative expression happens to fit into the collective commonality of society. Like if you imagine a giant Venn diagram of every single person in your town um, overlapping, that, that, that overlap's gonna be really small, right? So your unique things, especially like your very potent unique things, whether it's sexual, whether it's your power, whether it's your creative genius, it can be seen as threatening, which is why traditionally religions, which has been an institution of the collective, have demonized anything that leads to individuation. So um, yeah, I mean anything like a, a Cultures that didn't have tattoos saw tattoos as evil because it'd be, if, if you have a tattoo, you really stick out. Whereas cultures where everyone tats, gets tattooed, if you don't get tattooed, then now you're now you're the evil one, um, and, and things get demonized. So like Jung was saying, one of the reasons why so many people in the modern era have all these psychoses is not that we're all neurotic necessarily; is that society the way it is doesn't leave room for a lot of individual expression. And if you have like a thought, I mean, to use, I'm gonna use sex examples because that's where people have like some of the most neuroses. Like a woman's like, oh, I'm this like powerful feminist woman. Like, why do I want to get choked in bed? Or like, why do I like, uh, you know, calling him daddy? Like this is so like, a lot of women, a lot of like feminist friends I have like kind of battle this like, why do I have this impulse? Like that's a very pure archetypal desire. We can theorize what the reasons for that is. I mean, I've. I've talked about this in other videos, but like um, uh, the only like, the only reason why they even have that this like dilemma within them is that this, the the reference group like I'll use the feminist example because it's kind of like uh, an, a very obvious one um, a woman who refers to hardcore feminism like extremist or whatever feminism and like sees like being submissive in the bedroom is an evil thing, if she sees that as normal and she has this desire to be choked in bed, well now she's a weirdo. Now, now she has this evil demon in her, like, oh my God, I like to be choked in bed, but my reference group is telling me that's a bad thing or that's a, a weird thing. And then they feel neurotic and, and, and psychotic perhaps. And that is one of the roots of modern day neuroses that we don't have space for individuation. Why nowadays, and, and it's partly because we're in a consumerist culture, but also because we're, we're tapped, like on the other end, we're tapped into this, these giant tribes, these very impersonal tribes known as countries and also cultures and like subcultures and whatever, like they're way bigger than Dunbar's number, way bigger than, than 150 people. So it's very hard for us to express our unique gifts and feel normal. Like anytime someone uh, like finds something unique to themselves, it always feels weird. I talk about this with like guys a lot, like naturally when you come into your power, when you like learn how to you know build your confidence and express what's true for you, like really be authentic and true to yourself, you're naturally gonna find things that are, are gonna be abnormal compared to your reference group. Unless you happen to be in a group of people exactly like you, which is rare. I mean, it's not very individual of you if you're exactly like other people. Things are gonna, um, and we're not even talking about weird stuff like sex or spirituality. Like, a guy will be like, uh, I mean, I, I happen to coach a lot of guys into fitness and a lot of fitness trainers, and I've helped a lot of guys start like start their business when it comes to fitness. Which, again, I'm using fitness as an example because I have these examples, but also, like, fitness is not a weird thing. But I've, I've had a lot of guys be like, I'm kind of afraid to share about this on my Facebook or stuff because like all of my friends know me as like, don't know me as a fitness guy, like it's gonna be weird. And I'm like, why do you give a shit? Like if this is true for you, why do you give a shit about conforming to like the expectations of guys you went to high school with of like them not knowing that you lift weights? Like why does that matter to you? But a lot of people have that. A lot of people have that fear when it comes to sharing themselves like, oh, what will people think that it doesn't match what their view of is with me. And it's a totally irrational thought, right? Like we can think, like, we can be like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why do you give a shit? Like, if people don't see you as a fitness guy, well, they'll just change their perception. But there's something like very primal and inbred. Like, we have a resistance to that because <clears throat> back in the day, if you were in a small tribe, in a small tribe where you knew everybody, if you did something particularly weird or unusual or counter, you might get ostracized and cut off because in a group of 50 people, if you're doing something that's very against the collective identity, they might be like, okay, you might actually be a liability, you might be dangerous. And back then, it might have been uh, a little more practical. Um, but nowadays, like, there's so many things that make us uh, differentiate from the collective because the collective psyche, because it's full of so many people, have to be so, the collective conscious, the reference group, the reference groups that we're part of have to be so small, like the Venn diagram overlap is so tiny that almost anything that's unique to us is gonna be seen as weird. Um, but then we have this like internal push-pull of trying to be part of something and not. 
which is, um, I had to refer to this because this is kind of like maybe one of the dangers or like something to be aware of when you're finding your purpose in life, which your purpose naturally is going to involve other people or bring a gift to other people. You can't be weighed down by the, by the norms of the reference group. If you want to bring something unique to the world, you have to connect with your individual creative genius and perhaps even like, it might even be a good model for understanding of like connecting to we could call it the wisdom of humanity, the things that are not the parts of the unconscious that are not personal to you, but that the world needs. Like if you can connect to that, you can come back to that old reference group and be like, hey, here's some awesome shit. Here's this new way to work out. Here's this new perspective on life. Here's this whatever. Here's this new business I created that's a disruptive idea and has never been done before. But look, it's not weird. In fact, you can let other people refer to you but now, going back to the loop that I that kind of kind of cut off about the dangers of um, of guru worship, basically. Um, so Jung was speaking about this, um, where let's say a tribal chieftain earns his position as the fucking man. He wears he uh, feathers and headdresses. Maybe he has uh, unique tattoos or weird, or, weird, or weird something. And the purpose of this is not to have one guy have dominion over the others. Is that there's actually a reason for this, as as Jung pointed out, which is that it's important that the collective the collective conscious kind of um, all agrees that this guy is important. It's not like an individual like, oh, Joe thinks this guy should be chief, but Phil thinks this guy is a scrub. Like if you have that and then, then his function as tribal chieftain or, or shaman is not going to work. It's not going to be able to benefit the tribe. So they all have to kind of agree like, okay, this person, at least for this period of time, is the man. Uh, we're going to let him be the head of our collective body. It's something I talk about a lot in the archetype class of like uh, what I think is like the core of um, consensual dominance and the virtue of dominance as far as masculinity is not is not like overriding people and like getting things, getting your needs met at other people's expense. It's kind of an act of service of like, I'm going to bring us together, like whether you're the head of your family or you're the masculine pole in an intimate relationship or, or the head of a team, like it's kind of your job to rein everybody in so that we all have consensus and we can all, the body of the superorganism can move in one line which requires a head, which is the whole reason why we have leadership, like why leadership is an important virtue. Anyway, but that, that by itself is great. The danger is when people stop, stop listening to the chieftain because they remember like, that he earned the position, but they start thinking like, oh, well, that guy has the fancy headdress on, so now we have to say whatever he wants. This is damaging to both sides, like on the cult psychology side, like people end up suppressing their own needs to follow this other person who they assume is doing best for them, but maybe they're not actually, like, maybe they don't, they don't actually uh, have everyone else's uh, uh, needs uh, actually in mind. And Jung actually pointed, I didn't think about this until I read this in the book, but Jung was pointing out that it's really damaging to the individual because now his personal, excuse me, a lot of hiccup burp stuff today. Um, <laughs> uh, his personal, uh, his personal psyche, both his conscious ego and his creative genius has now been absorbed by the collective is no longer his, like his identity he becomes known as president or he becomes known as medicine man and no one and like um his identity is now absorbed into collective so it's no longer individual to him and and it can go both ways where now um his his personal unconscious his unique individual creative genius is now seen as the unconscious of the world as damaging to the group also on the flip side the group's conscious identity becomes his so now he kind of loses in his individuation the, the former I know a little more about, like as far as cult worship, and actually, um, so a, a guy who was in the cult that I was in happens to be in Chiang Mai. We ended up hanging. I haven't seen him in years. And I actually didn't honestly know him that well in the cult, but we ended up spending. You know, we've had a lot of common experiences. We were talking about our cult war stories and back and side, and we were speaking a lot about how um, everyone in my cult and in most cults, most people would worship the guru as as a deity, and um, I, I'm guilty of that. Like I totally had Stockholm syndrome at some point. We're like. I was, I was lucid enough to call out all the manipulation techni techniques. I could see how they're brainwashing people. But it was really hard for me to criticize the guru directly. Like I just had this in my head. I had Stockholm syndrome. I was like in some way in love with my captor and it was hard for me to like, there's uh, theories of why that is. But um, he was, I, for whatever reason, he didn't fall into the DD worship. And basically what that, what happens is like, uh, it's the halo effect, Chaldini's halo effect. 
this person is able to do something that you can't do. Like for me, she was able to read into me and give me certain pieces of advice that was super beneficial to me, like objectively beneficial. So when she told me other things, I kind of just like gave her the benefit of the doubt. Um, this happens a lot. This happens honestly, you know, even political parties in modern day, this happens in, uh, with celebrities a lot. Like um, and the danger is like um, in the shamanistic setting, uh, a shaman would have a dream. I, oh, I had a dream about, um, I had a dream that everyone in the tribe was giving me money. And then, because everyone now has deified this, this uh, shaman, they're like, oh, well, the shaman had a dream that we all gave him money. Well, that must be the truth. So, like, let's all give him our money. And that becomes a justification, which is definitely not the case. There's many reasons why someone might have a dream. This guy might just be a greedy asshole who, like, is now thinking, maybe he legitimately had that dream, but he's like thinking about how I can get money and he has this dream and everyone just assumes that. Obviously that can be a very negative thing when the collective and the individual, individual psyche get kind of mixed up. But on the other hand, you know, an individual, and I'll, I'll say this, like, I, I see this, like, and this happened to me once when I was coaching and like, uh, when I really first started coaching or first started like feeling really competent in coaching and people started giving me, like I'd have clients or students who kind of give me the benefit of the doubt in a way that I was like, whoa, whoa, like maybe, maybe you should like not take what I'm saying for granted and think about this. I mean, before I had that thought, I personally was feeling a lot of pressure. Like if I, if I started to see myself as like this superior person who like has advice that no one else has, every time I would start to have panic attacks, not panic attacks, but I would start to go into panic before coaching sessions because like, what if I can't deliver the goods? Like what if I can't bring genius level advice to someone? And it's really damaging to the individual. So I'll say this on both ends, it's damaging. Like you have to be careful if you get into coaching or advice or like in some way you are taking the virtuous position of leader of a group or like advisor or something, that's great. I hope that you find a creative purpose uh, that, that is both fulfilling to you but also benefits humanity or benefits other people. But if you ever get to this idea like, oh, I'm this special person that can do something it's gonna be really bad. It's like karma's gonna bite you. It's not even like you know. It's not even like a moralistic thing. It's just that uh, it's gonna feel like so much pressure on you. I experienced this myself. Like I felt so much pressure to be perfect that it drove me nuts. Like the best thing is to remember that you are a normal person. You are a peer, and as you create something that's beneficial to the group, it's not you doing it. Which is why, as I referenced in the War of Art, great artists don't necessarily take credit for the work. They recognize that this came through me because if it starts getting wrapped up in your personal conscious and in your ego, it's not even a thing like you should or shouldn't do. It's gonna, it's gonna mess you up. And I, this is kind of a, and it. Uh, it's kind of a theme of my book, actually, on my cult experience, where like uh, I had this buddy throughout the book who's kind of like my my um, like my intellectual mentor who could like work out. He was like, a psychologist, and he actually taught me a lot of psychological principles that I didn't know. I mean, he had a PhD and stuff, but. Um, we would speak about, he's also a Star Wars nerd, so we would speak about the Jedi versus Sith. It's like, the Sith in itself, I mean, it's a bit, you know, the Sith in itself weren't necessarily evil. What made them evil is that the Sith, if you, in the Star Wars universe, had uh, educated each other through what was the rule of two. So there'd be one master and one apprentice, and when the apprentice got strong enough, since there could only be two of them, he had to kill his master so he could take on another apprentice. And like, in that way, the Sith, even though they were individually more powerful than Jedi, they never grew bigger until until Anakin Skywalker came along and like fucked them up from the inside. But the Jedi on the other hand were all individually weaker, but they all believed in the collective. So a lot of our religious assumptions about morality come from this idea that one must sacrifice themselves for the collective. At one point in human history, that probably was like the best way to look at it when we were small tribes. But as it became co-opted by religion and like became this thing where like anything individual was suppressed, uh, different forms of creative expression and sexuality was repressed and women were oppressed for the sake of the collective because like sex and sex and empowerment kind of like fuck up the stabilization of a very big group because they require like for us to have a a, a coherent collective that's bigger than Dunbar's number, bigger than our individual relationships. And, and Noah Harari speaks about this in Sapiens. We have to have like a group myth. So I thought one of the, the, the genius abilities of human beings is that we were able to have, uh, hold on to concepts beyond our relationships and like now form reference groups that were way bigger than what we could have in it because like we're all, we all identify as Christians or we all identify as Russians or whatever. Um, but there's danger to that. I was really just checked that I didn't leave any loops open on that. I was speaking about Jedi versus Sith. Uh, 
Let's see. Oh, and I, I spoke about Satanism briefly last week. I mean, so one of the, you know, Satanism isn't necessarily like this evil doctrine. It's like basically Satanism, because Satan, Satanism uses Christian uh, Christian symbolism, like Satan is a Christian, or now it's a Christian uh, symbol. Like the whole idea behind Satanism was like kind of trying to combat the idea of like, the Christian ideal of always suppress the individual for the sake of the, the collective, always suppress the instinct for the sake of um, the ego. Satanism was like flipping it to the opposite extreme of like always suppress the collective for the sake of the individual, which is obviously can be damaging, but it's kind of what modern consumer society, I'd say Western American uh, morality is kind of built on. And I'm going to think I'm going to end on this idea, which is one of Carl Jung's uh, Thoughts was that, um, well, actually, I, I wrote down a couple quotes that I didn't want to mess up. Um, he was speaking about how, oh, so <clears throat> even though, well, he was, it, it was what he was saying. He was saying that the highest achievements of humanity and the, the vilest deeds of humanity are both individual. Like, one of the benefits of creating a collective is that um, the more average our behaviors are, the less likely we're gonna do something that is damaging to the group, which is why the weird person would get ostracized in a tribal group. Whereas, um, you know, if we have this collective value system, it's less likely that we're gonna damage something. Um, but at the same time, to come up with like brilliant genius things, like really tap into the wisdom of the universe and express your creative genius, it has to also be outside of average. So there's a trade-off when you connect to the collective. And I would say if there's any like, goal of someone in their development is to be able to have this fluidity where they can connect with the collective, not feel isolated, find ways to support the group and help other people, but also um, be connected to your individual needs. Hopefully your individual interests and needs don't combat the group. Um, the other thing is, um, <clears throat> uh, as I mentioned this already, the, the, the bigger the group, the more the less, the smaller the average, the, the smaller the collective um, parts of the psyche will be. So the more, like, the bigger the group, the more of individual expression will be shoved into the unconscious and then potentially uh, turned into what we would look at as sin. Like, um, as, as, as I mentioned, if there's like 20 roommates in the house, it's, it's less likely that they all have the same value system on how to live. And then there's more likely that more of who you are gets repressed. And, and so it's something to be aware of as you connect with reference groups, which is great. We're social animals. We should. Making sure that you're not dissociating from something that's unique to you and a virtuous part of yourself just because it doesn't happen to fit into other people. Um, so I, I say to guys a lot when you're finding yourself and you're trying like, on this path of individuation, not that you should cut off from your old friends, but, but like it might be good to spend some time not with the people that you grew up with because if your reference group sees you as this small person or sees you as this uh, you know, just like this sheep or this was one of the cogs in the machine, it's gonna be really hard for you to fight against that because your unconscious is gonna be tied to that. It's a lot easier if you just take some time to separate from your group, find out who you are, and if you choose to reconnect with them, great. But I, that's like one of the number one things that I see that prevents a, as a person from finding their individual expression is like they're kind of weighed down by expectations of their group. And maybe everyone in your group should go do that and, and, come, and come back together as more individuated people. And, um, and uh, I didn't get to speak about personas as the last quote I was gonna, I was gonna mention that, uh, cause like the word persona is kind of like a common word that we all use, but it's another one of these words that was basically made up by one of these early psychologists. I, I believe Jung actually coined the term persona, persona being a mask, um, being a mask of the ego to interface with the collective and, and Jung's uh, quote that I kind of wrote in sloppy handwriting was um, a persona is basically a compromise between personal and, and collective. Like a persona is like, okay, well I am this way. I have this part of this, this like personal creative genius in me. It doesn't totally fit in the society. So I'm gonna wear this persona as kind of like an interface, like as a compromise to fit in with everybody. That's fine because if you know if you're a weird a weirdo um, and you're working on your creative gifts and they're not refined enough to like connect with other people or, there's, or they're just so weird that no one in your reference group can connect with it, you might need to put on a little mask to interface with people. But you should recognize that it's a mask that it's not who you are because that's where a lot of psychoses and and, and uh, neuroticism end. Um, and I just want to tie us back to the beginnings. I know we covered a lot of different things. The purpose of a rite of passage traditionally was to humble 
the ego, humble the, the post-pubescent, testosterone-fueled um, young man who now has this potency to humble his ego, to c- connect him, to give him like real felt reasons to connect to his reference group so that he can find a way to express his potency, his power in a way that helps other people and connects with the group rather than harming other people. That is really important and if you are on a personal development journey, at some point you gotta be like, I'm stopping, I'm no longer gonna do this just for my own selfish needs for money, sex, power, all those are important. I have enough money, sex, and power or whatever your selfish needs are and now I'm gonna express my gifts to help other people and I'm gonna make my focus about helping other people and that's like the most like spiritually fulfilling thing if there is anything. Once you're whole enough to help other people, you're not helping other people as a nice guy, you're helping other people because you have a surplus to share but you have to watch out of the dangers of getting wrapped up in the collective and still connect to your personal unconscious. That's all. I've enjoyed this video a lot. I don't think we had any questions. Scroll through in case I missed anything. No. Um, If you didn't catch the beginning, uh, I have a new members area that's for free on my website. Um, Just if if you're on my email list, uh, you'll get a notification eventually in a week or so. Um, But um, if you're not on my email list, if you join my email list now, you will get my entire five-year archive of video interviews for free. Um, and then if you have any of my courses, there's a new back end that looks a lot prettier and less uh, less tech troubled. And um, uh, this is, I don't get anything out of this, but I wanted to plug uh, my friend's sustainable nonprofit company. It benefits children in Thailand. It's also uh, benefits the earth because he takes waste products of coffee and turns them into awesome soap. Really quality soap too. Uh, I don't get anything out of it. I just want to let you know if you want to check that out go to singleoriginskincare.com and I think he still has a um, Indiegogo up where he can get some of his products at a discount because as I mentioned, it's all being bootstrapped, it's all out of pocket, it's a nonprofit, goes to a great cause. So check that out. If you search Indiegogo for Single Origin Skincare, you will find that too. I'll see you guys next week. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about, but if, you have any, if you're in the Masculine Underground Facebook group and there's something you want me to cover, whether it's an archetypal psychology or sexuality or dating or whatever, if it's relevant, I have something to say, I'd be happy to teach a lesson on it or, or go do a talk on it. So join that, and that's all. See you later. Enjoy your whatever.